National Review Institute is cruising to Alaska. Join NR writers and other thought leaders for a special vacation from June 16 to June 23 aboard Holland America's Nordum. If you're feeling especially adventurous, you can participate in an optional land tour before the cruise from June 12 to June 15. Enjoy fine dining, entertainment, and world-class accommodations as you rub elbows with NR personalities and other special guests during panel discussions, breakout sessions, exclusive 1955 Society events, and more. Make it a family trip! This year we've added youth programming for your children and grandchildren. Destinations include Glacier Bay, Skagway, and Juneau. To register, visit nricruise.com. That's nricruise.com. Claudine Gay undone by a vast right-wing conspiracy. Is the White House losing on immigration? And what's up with Mike DeWine? We'll discuss all this more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline, Maddie Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brendan Doherty. Our sponsors this episode are the National Review Alaska Cruise and Site Neutrality. More about both of them in due course. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Charlie, the Claudine Gay debate continues to royal the pages of the New York Times and other opinion outlets. There was a op-ed column in the Times that that you wrote about nearly 1,800 words. Didn't mention the word plagiarism. I read it this morning and I had the strong sense it didn't mention the word plagiarism, but I didn't bother to kind of cut and paste and search, but I was pretty certain it did not mention the word plagiarism. Instead, it's this power struggle for control of elite institutions like Harvard. And there's this, this, uh, uh, effort by nasty, hateful, reactionary uh, conservatives to take over these institutions under the leadership of Chris Rufo. Claudine Gay herself wrote a New York Times op-ed. She did deal with the plagiarism accusations, just said she believes in original work. She's has pride in her work, and she should have uh, been more careful about citing these scholars. But when immediately, when it was brought to her attention, she asked for corrections at these journals, but she also um, advances herself as a symbol of this terrible struggle that is going on for control of Harvard and other institutions that are targeted because they're so effective at training people, for instance, to identify and resist misinformation. What do you make of it? And the example she gave of institutions that we should trust and that our bulwarks against misinformation were public health authorities and the media. <laughs> should give you some impression of her credulity. I think that nothing has convinced me more that this was the right call than the responses in the days following her resignation, one of which was written by Claudine Gay herself, another, as you say, in the New York Times this morning, written by an ally of hers, 
that was evasive nonsense. If you write 1,750 words in the New York Times about a plagiarism scandal without using the word plagiarism or any synonyms of plagiarism, then you have a pretty clear agenda. But what bothers me more about the reactions subsequent to the resignation are that they cast DEI backwards. The argument seems to be that Harvard is a place of great liberal enlightenment that is being targeted by antediluvian reactionaries. And the opposite is true. Claudine Gay, plagiarism aside, is an antediluvian reactionary in her ideological predispositions. She was critical of the Supreme Court's decision in the affirmative action case. She got on board with this regressive agenda that is being targeted by people who still believe in the liberal principles that undergird the United States. Now, I'm not the one who made this about liberalism versus illiberalism. As far as I was concerned, the core question, the key question, the material question in the Claudine Gay case was whether or not she was guilty of the specific plagiarism charges that had been alleged. And the answer to that is clearly yes. But if they want to make this about ideology, bring it on. DEI, which is the subject of this piece this morning in the New York Times, this long piece defending Claudine Gay and attacking her critics, DEI is a terrible, evil philosophy that smuggles in under otherwise unobjectionable terms, a worldview that would take us back to the worst moments in human history. It is a worldview that is antithetical to free inquiry, antithetical to free speech, that wants to group people by their immutable characteristics, that does not believe there is such a thing as objective truth, that is solipsistic in nature, that conceives of human experience as being closed off rather than universal. And the people who want to get rid of it and its counterpart, its predecessor, affirmative action, are on the side of the angels. They are people who believe in merit, who believe in equality, who believe in judging people by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. How much of the coverage since we last talked about Claudine Gay has focused on what she did, and how much has focused on the color of her skin and her sex. A hundred percent of it has been on the color of her skin and her sex. The argument has been that she must be replaced with another person who has the same immutable characteristics, not somebody who is in the social sciences department, not somebody who is talented or has published this or that, or will bring in more money or will prove excellent in a leadership position at a top university, but another person who has the same immutable characteristics, that is regressive. That is reactionary, not the opposite. Not the people who want to judge people based on their behavior and their qualities and their virtues. That is regressive. And in any other context, it would be clear. If you changed slightly the makeup if you said we have to have a Harvard president who's Jewish, we have to have a Harvard president who's a man, we have to have a Harvard president who is straight, it would be patently obvious that that is a bad way of looking at it. That does not change 
if you substitute those for the word black or woman or gay, and she's not gay, that's her last name, but the argument is often recruited in favor of people who aren't cis, as the kids say. I think this has highlighted the problem with which we are dealing. And funnily enough, it's taken us back to Claudine Gay's original mistake. Not a mistake for which she was fired or probably should have been fired, but her original mistake, which was to exhibit a completely different set of standards for one group of people than for another. To pretend in front of that congressional inquiry that Harvard was this bastion of free speech. Why? Because the question was anti-Semitism and not, say, anti-black racism or homophobia or what you will. The responses to this have been crazy, and they have made me far more, if it was possible to be more, sympathetic to those who want to reform higher education and go after all of the other people of this type in turn than I was before. I think that we are now engaged in a staged battle between people who are fundamentally liberal and people who are fundamentally not. And for writers in the New York Times to cast the liberals as royalists and elitists and reactionaries is is preposterous and wrong and only serves to show why we have to engage in this fight and why we have to win it. So this 1,800-word essay that, that we've been discussing it argues basically that that merit is doesn't exist or or it can't be defined. But but Charlie, before I move on to to Maddie, let me ask you: since you read this essay so carefully, there's this one head scratching line here. I, I, I'm I'm sincerely interested if if you know what this means. She writes: it's a powerful rhetorical strategy uh, that the reactionaries are using because it merged the political craftsmanship of the 1988 Willie Horton ad. Okay, I understand that with the moralism of federalism. What what What's the moralism of federalism? Well, I, I don't know. I, I went through this piece or the various parts of it uh, that I thought summed up the argument and fisked it. And that line was within the two paragraphs that I accepted and honed in on. And I just wrote in my response to it that this doesn't mean anything comprehensible and therefore should be ignored. Yeah. <laughs> the rest of it can be responded to at length and should be. The, re- the rest of it makes claims that could be evaluated that i think is just i don't know a, just a bunch of stream of consciousness nonsense so maddie there there's something we've we've all resorted resorted to occasionally in our journal journalism the so-called to be sure line that's where you make the concession that is inconvenient to you or your argument so you would think the to to be sure line and all these pieces would be to be sure, she plagiarized, you know, and that isn't great. But you know, she's she's a pioneering African American woman, and and DEI is wonderful. Or even you know, to be sure, she she plagiarized, and and she had to go. But but the, these still the, these people who are her critics are evil for for reasons X Y and Z. But but most of these have have not had a to be sure line. Yeah, something I don't really understand about the argument that this was all about race is. You know, if it really is to do with the outsider identity of her enemies and uh, her status as a black woman and not her misdeed of plagiarism, then why would that actually have the kind of influence or power over Harvard, of all places? Um, 
if anything, it's going to be much harder for a right-wing partisan mob to exert any influence over Harvard, especially against a black woman who uh, is revered and protected by Harvard. So the idea that this was cancel culture just doesn't, is just on its face absurd. Cancel culture is when um, the action taken against somebody is, is either disproportionate to the offence or carried out in the absence of evidence of an offence. And in both cases, we see that actually by Harvard's own standards, um, plagiarism is a very, very serious offence. Students would be disciplined for this, possibly suspended or expelled, depending um, how how serious it was. And this this is serious because there is multiple counts, like nearly 50. Um, and then, you know, the, the evidence has been has been published. It's it's for all to see. Um, yes, it first, you know, started appearing um, or was raised by the New York Post and then obviously Washington Freebreaking and other places, but it has also been noticed by the New York Times, the Atlantic. Um, and so it, it's 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 hard to, it's hard to make the case that this is about anything other than plagiarism. Of course, it's true that um, Claudia Gay had enemies, political enemies, and they are delighted to see her go and use this as an, as a way to talk about the deeper problems with with higher education. But you can't really avoid uh, the facts here. The facts are what condemned her, and I think that you have to be a very hardened partisan to ignore those facts. So MBD, uh, Ross Douthat wrote a very interesting column about this. He writes interestingly about pretty much everything, but this is is one of his core competencies, an observer of these kind of institutions. And he says the choice that Harvard has is to be a national institution, in which case you you need to admit the legitimacy of conservatives and conservative uh, opinion and accommodate it to some extent or, or another, even if you're uh, broadly on the left, or to become a, a sectarian institution, which is, uh, you know, th- th- uh, an institution like Harvard can can live quite comfortably as a sectarian institution, still going to raise, you know, a, a ton of money, still going to have a, a lot of uh, impressive people going there. But he said what this threatened was even if they were going to be a sectarian institution, they were going to cleave off a lot of people who might go along with that um, that they would just say that this is too far. The combination of the reaction to October 7th and having a plagiarist at the top would, would go too far for donors and Silicon Valley um, <coughs> types and, and other folks on the center left. Yeah, I think, uh, I think Ross is on to something. I think, I think one of the more under-discussed features of American life in the last 40 years is the way that the Ivy League has... Um, like re- like uh, the Ivy League schools have nationalized the role that they played in the early republic in New England only, right? Like in New England only, these were this was the finishing school of the uh, New England elite, uh, political, business, and uh, you know, in law, etc. Uh, but because of the size of the country you know, it couldn't serve that function until air travel, you know? Um, so you had other schools in military schools in the South or state schools in California and, and others that were cultivating uh, regional elites. And now, now these schools want to play this national role at the same time that they've been completely overtaken by progressivism. And it's just not um, that their claim to represent the country is just ends up being, 
false or it relies on this tendentious idea that diversity is only skin deep. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think they're in a very difficult position. Um, you know, it's one thing for conservatives to kind of wish they'll go away. I mean, there's, there's literally centuries of inherited capital in Harvard and Yale and these, uh, top tier institutions. And, and that's just, it's not going to disappear overnight, right? Like parents, ambitious parents and ambitious kids still want to get into these schools. Um, and it would take a lot more corruption and a lot more weakening of their position as a, as a signaling instrument, you know, that you're a high achiever that you, you know, know how to, get, uh, get into top institutions. You know, those, those are things that employers want to see. Um, but you know, there are real questions about like the utility of these schools for scholarship. And, um, it's not just the admission scandals that were exposed by the Supreme court. It's not just the mediocrity that's being exposed by these journalists looking into the, the practice of plagiarism by people like Claudine Gay it's not just the replicate replicability crisis that's hitting all the social sciences. Um, you know, there's, there's going to be this, you know, there, the, I, I don't know it's going to take like another level of reckoning about what is the university really for? And is, are these top tier schools doing it? And I, and I don't think they are. I mean, I think the next scandal is probably going to be, the great inflation scandal, you know, that basically mm-hmm. it's almost impossible. It, 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 in recent years, it's became impossible to fail out of these schools. Now it's becoming impossible to even get a C right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can understand that because, you know, there's a, a transactional nature to these schools. Whereas before they were, you know, you know, in the, you know, in the era of Jewish quotas and whatever, where these schools were, you know, uh, schools for an already ex- existing elite. They weren't creating the elite as much. They were, they were, um, just a, a finishing school really. Um, you know, you could get C's and you'd still be expected to do well, but now that there, there has to be this pretense of, merit at every stage um everyone has to get an a and they have to get an a because they're already proved that they're a harvard type and you know at some point there are going to be institutions that come along and show that they're producing people just as capable as harvard is um Mm -hmm. so i don't don't know i think what what are you going to what Sorry, what were we going to say, Charlie? I was going to say that in this piece we're discussing by Tracy McMillan Cotton in the New York Times, she has the temerity to marshal in defense of her own argument the exclusion of Jews from the Ivy League while defending a system, <laughs> DEI and affirmative action, that functionally mm-hmm. does precisely the same thing to Asians. Mm-hmm. She thinks that militates in her direction. The looking at people by uh, into the color of their skin or their ethnic background is in favor of her position rather than a massive problem associated with it. 
So Charlie, X a question to you, following on from what MBD was saying. Hypothetical question. Money's no object. Would you send uh, one of your children to Harvard? I think it depends on what they wanted to study. There is a big difference in the way that the universities operate within the arts and within the sciences. This distinction was most recently brought to my attention by Russ Roberts, who I had on my podcast Mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago. There's no replication crisis in engineering or physics. Uh, There's, I'm sure, some latent wokeism around those institutions, but it's much harder to inject into STEM. So yeah, if my kids wanted to go there to study something that was less corruptible there's no doubt i'd say you'd be but not liberal arts or you'd be skeptical i'd be i'd be skeptical i mean i have to say this is a question i haven't had to grapple with yet because my kids are five and seven but i am in a strange place because when i went to university at oxford the nonsense with which we're dealing now was completely absent when i first started hearing about this shortly after i left in america i didn't know what the critics were talking about. I saw absolutely none of it in my academic work, from my professors or from other students, just nothing. Now I hear that Oxford has fallen to some extent into this habit as well. So I find it quite hard to evaluate on a personal basis what it is like, because this was 20 mm-hmm. years ago. Right. I'd have to look into it. And, and I assume some of it will have changed for better or for worse by the time my kids do go. But the broad answer is I would have absolutely no hesitation sending my kids to Harvard or Yale or MIT if they were doing something concrete. Mm -hmm. If they were doing something softer, I'd want to look into it. Maddie? Um, I think it depends entirely on the child because if somebody is, um, even as as a young person, they're showing signs that they're confident in who they are and what they Mm -hmm. believe. They would thrive in a contrarian environment where they would be at odds with everybody else. They're resilient, very bright. Then they would do very well at Harvard and might even come out of it um, with an even deeper appreciation of the important things just by being exposed to its opposite. But if somebody's impressionable um, or, you know, just not so sure of themselves, I think it would be an absolute disaster. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good distinction. MBD. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's funny you said money is no object because I think, um, you know, if money were even a factor, it would be no. Um, I agree totally with Maddie about the distinction. I, I chose the by far the most progressive college that admitted me, precisely because I wanted to be that contrarian role. <laughs> um, and, um, but yeah. I, I, you know, I'm trying to think of something that Harvard could teach my kids that would be useful and non uh, exportable. And until they start like a plumbing degree, I can't think of anything. (laughs) So, you know, I'm I'm torn because I I don't think where you go to college makes a, a huge difference in your life trajectory one way or the other. But still, I have this, you know, MBD, you're talking about this kind of capital, these institutions have, have built up and their their images. And, and, and I, I feel that uh, 
that that pull. So it's it's hard for me to say no. I don't know. I don't really know um, many academics at at Harvard or, or their work, but through happenstance, Yale has a great uh, thing where you can listen to a lot of classroom lectures. So I've listened to entire courses taught by Yale professors, and you know, thinking of of uh, of you know being at Yale and being able to take classes from Paul Johnson and John Lewis Gaddis and David Blight, even though I don't know like his politics, but he he's a giant in his field of the the Civil War, and we've lost them you know last couple of years. But Donald Kagan and Charles Hill, now they're all really old, so maybe that that tells you something. But um, I, I, I guess with, I'm, I'm with Maddie and 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 Charlie with their judicious answers. Depends on the kid and and depends on. What exactly they want to study in the the exact circumstances, and hopefully, you know, probably for the worse. But things things will will, will uh, change one way or the other, uh, ten or fifteen years from now. With that, let me do a quick plug for the National Review Institute cruise, which is setting sail this summer for Alaska. So you can join. And our writers and other conservative figures for a special vacation from June 16th to June 23rd aboard Holland America's Nordam. If you're feeling especially adventurous, you can participate in an optional land tour before the cruise from June 12th to June 15th. You can enjoy fine dining, entertainment, and world-class accommodations as you rub elbows with NR personalities and other special guests during panel discussions, breakout sessions, exclusive 1955 society events, and more. And you can make it a family trip as well. This year, NRI has added youth programming for your children and grandchildren. Destinations include Glacier Bay, Skagway, and Genoa. Is that how you say it? Genoa? To register, visit nricruise.com, nricruise.com. I will be there. I have been on an Alaska cruise before, and it is awesome. I mean, Alaska is an amazing place. A little you know, difficult to get to and get around in, so doing it on a cruise ship is ideal. Seeing the glaciers just from the ship is cool enough, but you can actually go on glaciers, which is an amazing otherworldly experience. You're like in this uh, totally ice, kind of blue-colored uh, world that's quite extraordinary. Just the, uh, the wildlife that you can see. A couple cruisers in this uh, years ago saw a bear, which may be something you don't want to encounter, but bald eagles and other uh, amazing stuff. And it's just a great time. People make lifetime friends on these cruises. So if you've been on an NR cruise before, this will be a great one. If you haven't been on an NR cruise, this would be a great way to start. Again, nricruise.com. Please check it out. Out. So MBD, I was going to the Twitter account of RNC Research, which is a good source for Joe Biden gaffes, Joe Biden uh, stumbles, um, idiotic things said by the White House press secretary and other White House uh, officials. And they had some clips from an interview with Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas the other day on the CBS Morning Show, which I, I pay no attention to. It's called, not very originally, CBS Mornings, but they have uh, three co-hosts, and one of these guys, Tony, with a uh, a Greek-sounding last name, I'll call him Tony D. You know, he's not a conservative. He's like a standard kind of morning show host guy. Just totally grilled Mayorkas, and it wasn't just you know on the images or on the numbers. It was on specific policy. He was saying the problem is these people get into the country. Most of them asylum claims are denied, and then they they never leave. 
And so Republicans have these ideas to exclude them with these, these, these meaningful changes to asylum laws, like changing the credible fear standard. And what do you make of it, Mr. Secretary? And he engaged in all the usual evasions. And this guy just nailed him to the wall such that Mayorkas was feeling defensive and throwing rhetorical questions back uh, at him. And it occurred to me at that moment, the White House is losing this debate. You know, they should have been losing this debate for three years. What's been going on at the border has been hurting them for three years. But I, I do think we've, we've passed some kind of an inflection point here where the images are, are terrible from, from the border. We've seen a lot of them from Fox, but they, they spread everywhere. The numbers are astonishing. And you have Democratic mayors saying that this is terrible and something needs to be done. Now, of course, they don't point the finger at where it, where it belongs to be or should be pointed at the White House, but, but they, they are saying how terrible this is and it's ruining their cities. And um, this is not going well for them. No. And, you know, I, I kind of decided in my own column today to ask, does, does Joe Biden realize that he probably is going to be facing Donald Trump in an election this year? I mean, it is uh, nuts that they have pursued these policies to this uh, extreme result where, you know, you have everything, you know, your eyes, your ears, everything testifies to there being a crisis at the border, right? Where the um, the crossings are overwhelmed, right? Where the, the, the social services like ambulance costs at Eagle Pass, Texas are like astonishing what, what it costs a month just to treat those migrants crossing into the country who are injured or sick or uh, have experienced, you know, some kind of setback while, while crossing the river, um, you know, is going to bankrupt this little town. Then you have big city mayors like Eric Adams saying that New York city will be destroyed by migration, even though it is a sanctuary city, supposedly, um, you know, uh, the mayor of Chicago saying similar things, um, New York, uh, actually Eric Adams is suing Texas over, um, the busing of migrants to New York and it's trying to recover money that way. Um, you know, the, Every part of this crisis emphasizes both the reality, which is that this is purely about numbers, right? Like this is <laughs> um, the strain on our services is about the sheer number of immigrants that have come into the country under Joe Biden's rule. It's over, over 4 million at least. Um, and uh, the Biden administration has done everything to open the border, basically, by dismantling Trump's policies and his executive orders, um, dismantling Remain in Mexico, and then kind of half trying to rebuild it in a um, in a fit of peak, um, it's not working. And Donald Trump is soon going to enter the stage, right? If if Donald Trump becomes the nominee, right, he's not just going to be ranting on Truth Social; he's going to be on every network, making the prosecuting the case. And saying, as he will be the first presidential candidate in American history to say, here's one of the chief crises facing the country, and I've already fixed it as president, so I can do it again. Uh, and you only have one man to blame, Joe Biden, and you have him to blame 
because Democrats are in thrall to this bizarre philosophy that enforcing the distinction between citizens and non-citizens is to commit yourself to white supremacy. Uh, and so they have this benign or malign neglect of the border that puts millions of people into the legal shadows, exposes scores of thousands of people to human traffickers, you know, and, you know, you're now getting stories in the New York times that no matter what language you speak in the world, you can go to TikTok now and find a guide on how to pass through the Darien gap from South America to mm -hmm. Central America in order to make your foot crossing into the United States, right? So that you can take advantage of the lax visa standards in South America and then make your journey as scores of thousands of Chinese nationals have done in the last year, right? Like, yeah, uh, this used to be an impassable part of uh, geography that kept South America from crossing into the United States. And it's in the last two years, it's been so trampled by migration that there's literally garbage trails leading you through what used to be an almost impassable part of, of Earth's geography. Uh, this is on Joe Biden. And um, it is, it's an astonishing achievement of, um, of, of uh, it's an astonishing monstrosity that he's achieved with this policy. So what, what you said, MBD, just made me realize that this is the cleanest policy argument that Trump has, you know, because he'll say, oh, the economy was better when, when I was president, but there are always a lot of confounding variables uh, on, the, on the economy. And, and actually, you know, a lot of the numbers have been pretty good lately. Foreign affairs is hard to prove. You know, he can say, well, Russia never would have done this on, on my watch. I certainly think Russia would have thought about it more, but you, you can't you can't prove that. But this, I mean, he had the policies in place that worked and they removed them and they stopped working. I mean, it's so it's so simple. And what you say about TikTok and the maps of the Darien Gap, it reminds me on Fox this morning and Bill Malusian, who who has just been so um we dog it on the story on, on Fox and it has really moved, moved the needle in terms of the national debate. This was not him, it was, it was someone else. But they had video of what the smugglers apparently do. You know, they cut a hole in the, the fence and then they, they shepherd everyone through. And then they'll take pictures and videos of the people walking in U.S. territory. And then they send it back, you know, to the next village and say, see, you know, they got through and you can come up and get through as well. And it's also just so, so humiliating, right? You have these two-bit... Uh, criminals er eroding a crucial piece of our, our our sovereignty and causing a crisis all across the the country because Joe Biden refuses to deal with it. It's kind of like the the Hooties in the Red Sea uh, in that respect. But but Maddie, um, you have these arguments from these th from these Democratic mayors that their cities are being bankrupted and their communities can't handle this as though that's only true of their communities, right? That's only true of Chicago. It's not true of El Paso, right? So if, if, as long as they stay in Texas or someplace else, it's fine. And a, a kind of hilarious instance of this is Eric Adams. You know, his solution to the problem is to um, get, get the uh, migrants dropped off in New Jersey, right? And then, then the the governor of New Jersey's his his solution is well, as soon as the migrants come here, we tell them there's this thing called New Jersey Transit, right? And we're going to put you on this train right here, and it's a nice, comfortable twenty minute ride, and then you're right in and Manhattan anyway. So there's this game of hot potato. Yeah, 
I think Democrats just increasingly are showing their unwillingness to to deal with this issue. Um, and, you know, I, Michael said that it's it's purely about numbers or, or mostly about numbers, but and I, I think that's definitely true. But I also think about how individual stories can really capture the public imagination. And I think this is something that Trump has always been very uh, perceptive about. He, you know, talks about caravan coming over. He talks about criminals. Um, and I think of the the lesson that we can learn here from Europe. I mean, there was that astonishing case um, about the uh, the Tun- t- I think Tunisian um, asylum seeker who had gone to, who had fled a prison in Tunisia for attempted murder, ended up in Belgium, um, applied for asylum in Belgium, had his asylum claim rejected, and then the Tunisian authorities uh, asked Belgian to extradite him he then they then just forgot to process it he ends up in sweden and murders people and then the um belgian uh, defense minister or justice minister had to resign and i think this is the type of thing that people um can can really see as the, the harms of this and you know the department of homeland security reported um last month that that 35,000 illegal immigrants with criminal convictions were encountered in fiscal year 2023. Um, and I think it was Peggy Noonan pointed out, like, that's only the number that were caught. Um, and there was also 13 people um, among those, 13 people on the terrorist watch list. So you just have to use your imagination to think that it just takes one or two really bad uh, cases for, for people to just see the effects of this. This is not something that only affects red states. This affects... Blue states as well as as you've noted with with the crisis on Eric Adams' doorstep, but it also it also affects just the the national security of the whole country. Yeah, Charlie, the the one place where no one will go, no no Democrat will go yet. <clears throat> Eric Adams maybe has gotten closest is 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 just to say, you know, this is not Greg Abbott's fault. This is not just solvable uh, with with more money if more people keep coming. Joe Biden needs to step up. Do his job, do his uh, duty, and stop this from happening. And this is why they're losing. They're losing twice over. The first way in which they're losing is that they're lying. They keep insisting that the border is secure, that they're doing all they can. Really, that this isn't happening. The Biden administration's line, as peddled by Karine Jean-Pierre, is that this is Republican talking point, that Joe Biden is on top of it, that it's under control. And that's a lie. And we all know that it's a lie. And it's a lie that is exposed by other Democrats who, while not naming Joe Biden, will name the problem and its consequences. And then they have the problem that they have created a poor set of policy choices. So if you, for a moment, ignore that they're lying and look at the policy per se, a policy that some libertarians would endorse, for example, if you look at open borders or functionally open borders or partly open borders on their own terms, it's not working. 
you will meet people who say, yeah, we shouldn't have a border. We, we should let everyone in. Maybe they wouldn't have people cutting through fences. And maybe some of those people would have stations where we enforce some modicum of security. But there is an argument, an argument many in the Democratic Party functionally believe in, but won't say that we should have open borders. Well, uh, that's not actually working out, is it? We have a border that is open and the consequences are horrific. So they're losing because they're lying, because they're describing the situation in a way that does not comport with reality and we can all see it. And they're losing because the policy that they have adopted is causing all manner of issues. And when you have both a bad policy and a policy about which you're demonstrably lying, you're going to lose the argument. I think it would be good if some of the Democrats who are complaining about this were to openly and explicitly say who is to blame instead of pretending that it's the fault of the people who are putting these migrants on buses. It's sort of the equivalent of blaming being obese on a fork. But the truth is we don't need them to because we all know who is to blame. The American public knows who is to blame. Polling shows that. And I hadn't thought about this, but Michael's quite right when he says that this is a really strange liability to have created, given that the most likely Republican candidate for president in 2024, alas, is going to be Donald Trump. So MBD, exit question to you in this negotiation between congressional Republicans and the White House over a package that would combine funding for Israel and Ukraine and some border measures, Republicans will get changes to asylum laws or, or other changes in the laws that will actually make a difference at the border, yes or no? No. Why not? Um, Democrats are um, more committed to dissolving the distinction between Americans and the world than they are to maintaining the distinctions between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. So that's, that's the way I, I jotted a little note here that th I think this gives Republicans more leverage. You would think that they don't really care about Ukraine funding much, right? So they don't have a lot to lose here. Whereas the white house supposedly cares about it a lot, but do they care to kind of flip around the, the traditional formulation about Ukraine and, and borders, you know, do they care about having an open border in the U.S. more than they care about Ukraine restoring its sovereign borders? That would be a key question here. Maddie, Republicans will, will move the ball, yes or no? Um, I mean, maybe it's too optimistic, but I, I think so. I think it's just the, the way things are right now are unsustainable. Um, and Democrats want an end to it as well. Charlie. No, I don't think so. I don't think Democrats do want an end to it. Maybe Democratic voters want an end to it, but the pressures here are enormous. The Democratic Party has decided mm -hmm. that this is a tantamount to racism. And maybe the appearance of Donald Trump on the scene makes that worse because once immigration mm -hmm. enforcement becomes associated with Donald Trump, then, of course, it's a Trumpist policy. So I'm a no. <clears throat> I'm a uh, naively optimistic yes with Maddie. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think they'll, they'll get something. You know, it's not going to end 
the crisis. I, I think they're, they're real cross pressures now in, in the, the Democratic Party. I mean, it's a big issue, the, the one that Charlie just described. But I, I think a lot of Democrats realize this is hurting. The White House realizes it's hurting. And I, I think we'll be willing to concede more than, than they would have thought, you know, possible, like e- even six months ago. And I do think they want, want the, uh, uh, the Ukraine funding still. But I have to say, MBD, the one thing I have not seen in a very long time is a Ukrainian flag, like anywhere, you know. So, so, so we're out of the fervent kind of politically correct phase of, of the war, um, certainly. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor this episode, Site Neutrality. Republicans are leading on healthcare and fighting to prevent a big hospital takeover of your local doctor's office. Did you know hospitals are being paid more than independent doctors for the same services, which leads to increased cost to patients and taxpayers? For example, the average cost of a biopsy is $146 with an independent doctor, while big hospitals charge a whopping $791 for the same procedure. Hospitals are being given a monopoly by unfair government pricing that puts your hometown doctor out of business and raises healthcare costs for everyone. Healthcare should not cost 57% more just because you went to the hospital instead of your local doctor. Say no to consumer rate hikes. Say no to government waste and say no to hospital monopolies. Sign up today to tell Congress no to unfair pricing at siteneutrality.com. Once again, that's siteneutrality.com, S-I-T-E, neutrality.com, and stop hospital monopolies. So, Maddie, a week or two ago, we haven't hit, hit this one, but it's an important one we want to get to, kind of a blast from the past where you had Republican Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio vetoing this is something we, we saw some Republicans get wrong-footed on a couple of years ago, but but since then, the, the party has, has uh, fallen into a much better place, uh, vetoing a bill that would ban the uh, so-called transition uh, care uh, for uh, transgender people, ban uh, biological males competing, males competing in women's sports, and it seems like he's going to get overridden by the Republican legislature, but what did you make of this veto and his justifications of it? Yeah, so this was the a ban on, on these procedures for minors. Um, and I don't understand, I mean, perhaps one of you has insight into why he did this, but it just seems such a political loser at this point. Um, as you mentioned, the he's about to have it over overridden. So what did he really achieve by this? Not much. He spent a lot of political capital on it. And if I could just make a, a couple of, of points about his rationale. So he his veto effectively accepted the premises of the transgender activists in saying that these treatments are are sort, sort of a matter of life and death. But really, we have to be specific about what we're talking about here. We're not talking about a controversial new treatment. Maybe it's an experimental treatment for childhood cancer. Okay, we're talking about drastic medical and surgical disruptions to the sexual development of physically healthy children and teenagers who can't possibly consent. So first of all, that's what we're talking about here. And he completely misses that. And the second thing is he he does what a lot of Republicans, we saw Chris Christie do a similar thing on the debate stage, try to do, which is say, this is about 
the government staying out of families, medical decisions. Uh, we don't want to interfere with parental rights. I'm pro-parental rights, and so this is a parental rights issue. But actually, the, the bill that he vetoed said nothing um, about overriding parental rights. It was trying to ban medical malpractice on minors. Now, there have been Republicans in the past who have targeted parents who want to transition their children. I don't think that's a good idea. I think that backfires. But that's not what was happening here. In fact, the bill specific, in, insofar as it referenced parental rights, it specifically protected the rights of parents who don't want to transition their children. So if you ban a medical practice, you've not actually interfered with a, a parental rights issue. You've interfered with a medical malpractice issue. It would be far better for everyone if the medical profession was capable of regulating itself. Obviously, it's failed there. And given the stakes, I think it's completely appropriate for government to get involved. Yeah, MBD, what uh, DeWine and other Republicans who still have this position, Chris Christie is one, he articulated this um, at, at some length in the, <clears throat> the last debate, is just parents, you know, we defer, we're conservatives, we defer to parents. You know, par parents know uh, their own children, parents know what's going on, parents should make these uh, decisions without interference, undue interference from government. Yeah, that was that was DeWine's rhetoric, um, but it's just you know it's it's totally irrelevant in this case. I mean, we we ban parents from physically abusing their children or from you know uh, inflicting harm on them in any other way, whether it's through malnutrition, neglect, etc. We we ban cigarettes for children or tattoos for children. Uh, whether or not their parents would consent to it. We ban drinking for minors, whether or not the parents would consent to it. Um, you know, and ultimately, like, what, what Mike DeWine was avoiding is the truth, is whether these, whether or not human beings are regularly born into the wrong body and whether this condition is safely and effectively ameliorated by chopping up their private parts and molding them into non-working facsimiles of other private parts that they were not born with. Um, th that is what he avoided. And like, you know, he, he, I'm sure he took on, I'm sure the pharmaceutical companies, I'm sure medical insurers, maybe hospital groups set him up with meetings with, you know, families of, of, you know, people who've transitioned, who gave them all sorts of testimony about how they uh, benefited from this. He repeated the, the trans propaganda that, like, these surgeries save lives, right? Like, this is the sort of the suicide threat from mm -hmm. that trans, uh, you know, that gender dysphoric teens are socialized into deploying as their kind of nuclear bomb or as their their, their trump card in the argument, which is do what I want or I'm going to kill myself. Um, when, you know, we don't have strong evidence that these surgeries reduce suicidality and we have some evidence that they increase it over time. Um, you know, I, I thought it was disgraceful, uh, but, you know, in some ways typical. I mean, um, you know, DeWine is not like a, a big conviction social conservative. Um, if he was, he wouldn't have used pro-life rhetoric in defending this decision. 
Um, you know, he's a, a solid Chamber of Commerce style Republican who is frightened by these issues and is, you know, in a milieu of people who view con- actual conservatives as retrograde and potentially dangerous on these issues. So we got what we got with him. And, um, you know, this is why Mike DeWines are being slowly pushed out of the party and replaced with people who do articulate the conservative view on this. People like J.D. Vance, who did that in Ohio and um, spoke out even as he tried to defend DeWine's honor as a honorable and smart man. Um, you know, Vance came out and said that this was the wrong call. He was right. Charlie? Well, I think it's just a total non sequitur to describe this as a parent's rights issue, especially given the other things that figures such as Mike DeWine and Chris Christie believe. Parents' rights has most recently been used as a branding exercise in relation to education to encourage parents to get involved in the decisions at their children's schools, either directly, as was the case during COVID, or through school boards. That's really not comparable to very dangerous or permanent behaviors. Now, if you think that the concept of parents' rights should be extended to those, then fine. But Chris Christie and Mike DeWine don't. Chris Christie does not believe, for example, that I should be able to give my 10-year-old child a rifle and allow him to walk around with it. Chris Christie does not believe that I should be allowed to allow my child to drive or take out a mortgage or get married or have sex. Quite clearly, there are all manner of restrictions that we impose on young people. We don't let them drink alcohol. We don't let them take certain medicines. This is another one of those, which renders this a normal political question, not one that you can determine by asking whether or not it falls within the purview of parental rights. If you think that these surgeries are good, then you should just say it. You should just say you don't want to restrict access to them and uh, you won't be doing that. And if you think that they're bad, then you should say that as well. But trying to euphemize your decision by describing it as the product of parental rights, I think is just really bizarre, uh, especially coming from people who simply do not adopt that extreme libertarian approach in any other way. So MBD, asked a question to you, and I'm going to shift gears a little bit because uh, we are 10 days away from the Iowa caucuses, so we got to get at least a little 2024 politics in here. A question I've asked before, and I'm going to ask again. Right now, would you rather be Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley? Um, I, would still, I would still rather be Ron DeSantis. Um, expectations are basically zero at this point, and yet you still have broad favorability across the party. Um, You're also a capable executive um, and you would be good at the job. Um, All right. Wow. I love it. MBD. Never surrender. Okay. Never surrender. Never give up. Never back down even. (laughs) I'd rather be that than someone who can't answer a basic question about the civil war. Whoa. Um, Yeah, you basically you would not be Nikki Haley in any circumstance, right? I mean, that's you're you're not a Nikki Haley person. No, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not a Nikki Haley person. I would, um, yeah, I would. I, 
I'd probably go for Trump before Haley if um, if the uh, gun were at my head. Really? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's tough. It's tough. She'd be a bad president. I think she'd be a bad president. I mean, I I, th- I think Trump is a bad president, but uh, I think her um, her policies could be worse for the country than his um, chaos. Like foreign policy is a big. Yeah, that would that would be that would be a big one. But I also, you know, I wouldn't trust her on on domestic policy either, especially with what she said about immigration during this campaign. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she came close. I I, uh, I didn't comment on it because I didn't go back and look at the full context, and it was from a, a Ron DeSantis Twitter feed. But she came close to an act of love kind of statement the other day about illegal uh, immigrants. Charlie, who would you rather be? We're purely asking here who we would yeah. rather be if our aim is right. to win the primary, right? Yeah, yeah, right. I'd rather be Nikki Haley. I think she probably has the best chance of unseating Trump, although that chance is very small. I can't see how DeSantis can do it, unless, of course, the entire polling array yeah. is nonsense. Maddie. Um, I would rather be Ron DeSantis just because I have a very sensitive cringe reflex and Nikki Haley's latest gaffes um, have just been very embarrassing. There's obviously this, the Civil War one, but then there's this... Um, Iowa caucus's remark about mm-hmm. the New Hampshire yeah. voters correcting it. And then the one that really takes the biscuit for me is the mixing up of uh, Caitlin Clark and Caitlin Collins. Yeah. <laughs> that I don't <laughs> mind. That I don't mind. So oh, no, no. See, I, I just get so embarrassed when I get people's names wrong. So I don't uh, think okay. I'm well. <laughs> uh, I don't think this is a close call anymore. It's obviously Nikki Haley. She could easily finish second. In Iowa, I mean, the most even if she doesn't, the most likely outcome is that Ron DeSantis is out of the race <clears throat> on January sixteenth. She is competitive in New Hampshire. This ARG polling outfit's not the best respected outfit, and their New Hampshire polling is a little bit of an outlier compared to other polling. But the trajectory is the same. I mean, she's gaining and is within shooting distance of Trump. Now, I, I think if she wins New Hampshire, you know, and I think maybe there's like a 40 percent chance of that. What happens? I mean, she surges to thirty percent everywhere nationally, and there, there's probably no way to get the, that additional twenty uh, percent in the, the latest gaffe where she said New Hampshire corrects Iowa, which is a fine thing to say after you've lost Iowa, but but not 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 such a shrewd thing to say before you've lost Iowa. And when you're making major investments in Iowa and maybe gaining, we haven't seen an Iowa poll in a while, but maybe gaining in Iowa is what wasn't a great thing to say, but she, uh, she said, you know, you have Iowa and then uh, New Hampshire corrects and then South Carolina, my home state decides. I mean, she, she's best case probably, you know, she loses 60, 40 to Trump, I would think in South Carolina. There's a poll that just came out, an Emerson poll that has her 25% in South Carolina. Now she'd go up after winning New Hampshire, but DeSantis is at seven in South Carolina. I mean, he's low single digits in New Hampshire. So what I'm saying about, you know, a New Hampshire victory, uh, not meaning much because it's hard to see where Haley would go afterwards. I, I mean, wh- where where is DeSantis going? You know, uh, I guess maybe a stunning Iowa victory would change everything. Maybe that ha- would have to be the theory, but it seems very unlikely. And it just looks like either the theory was flawed or it was just too hard given the reality. But I thought the theory of the DeSantis center out strategy not center ideologically, is run to the right ideologically, obviously, but going to the center of the party, uh, the um, you know, MAGA-ish element of the party 
that basically likes Trump, supports his policies, but maybe is willing to go someplace out, uh, 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 else, get get that territory, and then build, you know, win the non-Trump people by just showing strength by by doing this first. I thought it was a smart strategy. It was still probably the best strategy. It just hasn't worked because Trump has had too much of a hold on that element of the party. The indictments obviously have helped there. So the Haley um, outside-in strategy, you know, win the non-Trump people and and then try to to ero- eat further in. Um, that's that's worked better because at least she's won the non-Trump uh, element. I think it's unlikely she can ad- advance far enough to through the into the rest of the party to get to fifty percent places. But she's surviving. She has money. You know, DeSantis is broke. So the answer now to me seems clearly Nikki Haley. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you've been taking in some New York City shows. Yeah, over the uh, Christmas break, I kind of fell in love with the city again. Um, Santa was very kind to my children this year and got them each a ticket to a show that they could go to with mom and dad. Um, so my daughter saw the Rockettes Christmas special, um, and one of my sons saw Cirque du Soleil's Christmas show, and uh, my youngest son saw the Bubble Show, um, and all of them were awesome. Uh, and each day was a great day out in the city, and taking the kids to see you know the tree at Rockefeller Center, and then the show, and then maybe a little dinner or lunch, as the case may be. Uh, it was just a great time and it, it's, um, a real blessing to have access to this kind of level of entertainment in the city. And there's something really nostalgic and, um, sweet about stuff like the Rockettes Christmas show. It's very, it's very throwback at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. I've never seen it, but everyone always says good things about it in time. Yeah, it's great. All right. Wow. MBD back in love. With New York City, Maddie, you had a nice, at least I assume it was a nice New Year's Eve. You at least had a New Year's Eve. <laughs> yes. In fact, I had three New Year's Eves because I was celebrating it with my, well, at my sister's in Omaha, Nebraska, Whoa. with my parents who... I, I didn't know your sister was in Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah. Uh, not, not for much longer, but yeah, they've been there for a few years. Um but yeah, my parents were over and they're obviously from the UK. And so we, none of us really felt like staying up till uh, midnight central time. So we uh, first sort of in a very half-hearted way celebrated UK New Year's, which is at like 6 p.m. Um, central time or maybe 5 p.m. And then we did uh, Eastern time and watched the ball drop in um, Times Square and then we all went to bed. So the actual New Year's was, I think I was probably brushing my teeth at that point. So yeah, it was great. So I'm going to mine uh, the last couple weeks because we went on a little vacation and there were the holidays. So so a lot of things uh, happened. So I'm going to kind of uh, dribble them out here. So I talked last episode about seeing the dolphins when we were down in South Florida. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about seeing the Florida Panthers, the NHL team down there. While while we're, we were away, and I've been a hockey fan my entire life. I love hockey. It's a great game. Because the Panthers are not the hottest ticket down in, in South Florida, I was able to acquire uh, relatively cheap uh, Panther seats uh, two, two rows from the ice, uh, cl- closest I've, I've ever been in an NHL game. And just when these guys came out for their practice 
I was stunned. <laughs> I was stunned. It was just totally new experience of hockey. These guys are so big. They are so fast. They're so agile. There's so little room on the ice for these monsters to maneuver, but they, but they do it. It was just, it was just an incredible. And one of these guys was uh, practicing, I don't know, his pass, a shot, whatever it was, but just repeatedly uh, uh, against the glass, right where we were standing. It was like, boom, boom, boom. It was so cool. And uh, Panthers lost to the Blues. I didn't, I didn't have a dog in the fight. That was fine. But it was a, it was a really cool experience. So, Charlie, you got to match that. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go back slightly in time just between New Year and Christmas to the Christmas cocktail competition that we hosted at my house, where everyone who was invited had to come up with a Christmas cocktail and bring enough of it for everyone to try. Now, as you imagine, this ended with a fair amount of drunkenness, um, but the uh, favorite of mine, at least the one that we didn't make ourselves, was the uh, Christmas coconut margarita, which looked mm. like snow. It was very wow. cleverly done. It looked like snow. There's some because, coconut shavings in there? Yeah, exactly. Nice. And if you put the coconut shavings around the edge of the glass, then the effect is even greater. I think I haven't mentioned this on the edge. So I'm looking back fondly on the day that I invited all my friends to come over with huge amounts of booze and uh, party. Was it like Noah? You have 50, 50 friends over? No, 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 no. We had a. We don't have as many friends as Noah. I think we don't know the entirety of New Jersey. <laughs> I think coconut is a great like secondary flavor. You know, it's not not up there with like major flavors, but it, it's it, it's a great occasional flavor. Like on coconut shrimp, where mm -hmm. it's the additional. Oh yeah, oh yeah, great example. Yeah, great Thank example. You. All right. Well, with that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD. What's your pick? <laughs> I'm glad Maddie was amused by that. <laughs> I think you scared, scared him off. And I think MBD's ruined it by muting. Come on, MBD, unmute. That's why you're, trying to, you're trying to shout through this, the mute. I'm right. leave this incident of muting in because we don't want to ruin my introduction to you. Oh, my gosh. Uh, my pick is Armand White's annual The Better Than List, um, which is where he gives his totally unique perspective on the year in film in very short bursts by saying this film was better than that film. And he starts off right away with the provocation saying that John wick four was better than Oppenheimer. And he just goes on from there slaying sacred cows as usual. <laughs> and um, I, I, I love him. I think he's, he might be the most conservative writer at NR and um, he's great. So, did you see Oppenheimer? Remind me. I finally did. I finally did see it actually over the winter break. Um, I liked it a lot. Um, I thought. Um, I thought the film was very intelligent in that it took Oppenheimer's side as far as it wanting to. The film wants to see him uh, bring physics to this culmination. Uh, this this terrible culmination in Los Alamos. But then the film also in a very subtle way, I think takes the side of all of his detractors. His critics get all the yeah. best lines. Um, and Robert Downey Jr. Should win an Oscar. Yeah. Uh, that, that was a good portrayal, but that whole so subplot was cartoonish. But uh, the well, thing is like, yeah, they made him, they made him a little bit, of, but, but he, in his final monologue, 
the scenes that are cut in of Oppenheimer prove Strauss's case against Oppenheimer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That he is, that he wants to be this martyr uh, figure knowing that it would never, you know, we were never going to hand new control of nuclear weapons to the UN. Um, And so I, I think the film takes uh Strauss aside subtly, um, even if it mm-hmm. makes him look a little tawdry. Um, and I think Danny Jr. plays him uh, sympathetically. Um, so Michael, yeah, not I'd to it- disparage your choice here, but I didn't get any of this from John Wick 4. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd put it slightly differently. I, I think that the, the film was tilted Oppenheimer's way, you know, understandably it's a biopic about Oppenheimer, but was honest enough that you could, a discerning viewer could watch it and say, yeah, they, they're right to strip uh, his, his classification. Maddie, what's your pick? Um, my pick is actually Charlie's piece on uh, Claudine Gay's Defenders, Have It All Backwards. thought it was very well done. We've obviously discussed it quite a lot this podcast, um, but still worth reading. Charlie? My pick's MBD, and the piece that I obliquely referred to earlier, I have thought frequently that the border crisis is a choice, but I hadn't, for some reason, paired it, perhaps out of an unwillingness to countenance that Donald Trump will be the nominee. I hadn't paired that with how crazy it is to do this given that Donald Trump's probably going to be Biden's opponent again. And Michael asks, <laughs> Joe Biden knows he's likely to face Donald Trump in a re-election bid, right? This is a great question. How suicidal, that's another word Michael uses, how suicidal do you have to be to do that? So my pick is a Dan McLaughlin piece. He's been all over the 14th Amendment argument, contention, since, since it became, you know, a, a real thing. I mean, since it was just uh, people writing op-eds about it, and he has uh, done an ex- extensive and detailed, as usual, piece about Trump's uh, filing. Headlined, this is not our most uh, original uh, headline of the year so far. Trump's filing asked the Supreme Court to settle his eligibility for the presidency. But if you want to know what's going on uh, in, in this argument back and forth, there's, just, there's no one else um, you should be reading first. You should go to uh, Dan as your main and prime source. He owns this thing. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National Review Magazine, strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to the NR crews and site neutrality. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. And we'll see you next time.